taken the time to look at the article for this week, it kind of uh, is going to help contribute to some of your understanding of uh, the greater context of what Paul is doing um, in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, he's addressing various concerns that he's heard about. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, um, he begins addressing the concern that the church has about food offered to idols. And he talks about, you know, can you eat idols? Can you not eat idols? And at some points it almost seems like he's saying, yeah, go ahead and eat that food offered to idols. And at other points it's like, no, don't eat the food offered to idols. And really what he's <laughs> trying to help them to understand is that sometimes as believers we give up things that we could pursue uh, for the sake of other believers. And it, it's done for the glory of God. And so he kind of concludes that whole section in chapter 10, verse 31 through 11, verse 1. He says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And so he's saying, I'm pursuing God's glory. I am willing to give up things that I could have because I believe that those things may deter others from coming to a full knowledge of Christ. And immediately from that whole conversation about, you know, sometimes as believers, we set aside things that we could have for the sake of God's glory and for the advancement of God's work in other people's life. He then moves into a whole section, uh, starting here in 11 verse 2, going on through chapter 14, that discusses various problems that the Corinthians had in their public worship. And so in 11.2 through 11.16, you have them discussing head coverings and how that all takes place. We're not going to be really focusing on that. What we're going to be looking at is 11.17 through 34, in which he's going to talk about what worthy worship looks like. Because Paul says, you know, you have actually bigger problems than just whether or not you're wearing head coverings and you're you know, glorifying God and how you think through all that. He says, you have a bigger problem. And the bigger problem is that you actually don't love your fellow brother and sister in Christ as you proclaim the very thing that makes you brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's absurd. And it needs to change. And so in the passage, he's going to tell them that they need to review the gospel corporately so that they can address the errors in their worship. And the same thing could be said for us. We are prone to sin. Why? Because we're sinners, right? The song says it, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Why? Because we're sinners. And what recenters you and me is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What makes your worship acceptable and pleasing to the Lord, what makes my worship acceptable and pleasing to the Lord is me and you constantly being reminded once again about why we gather for worship. And if we have a proper understanding of what we're doing in our times of corporate worship, it'll allow us to have meaningful, joyful worship, which will then flow out into expressions and even demonstrations that are completely unique and unexpected of our love for one another. And so as we once again start a new year, 
my goal is over these first few weeks is to remind us of the importance of good church. So two weeks ago, we looked at the importance of us being intentional and pursuing personal times of worship with the Lord. And so we looked at Psalm 1. Today, we're looking at the importance of corporate worship and how we unite ourselves in our endeavors to worship the Lord. And then next week, we're going to be looking at the importance of family worship and growing together as a family unit and uh, challenging you with pursuing that. If you will take your copy of God's Word, let's read together 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll start at verse 17 and we'll go through verse 34. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 through verse 34. Verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest he come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the fact that it is through you that we can gather together and worship corporately. It is through you that we have our unity. It is through you that we find our love for one another. Were it not for you, Lord, we would, we would be a divided group that seeks to bite and devour because you are in our midst and we know the love with which you have loved each one of us in sending your son we choose to forsake our own rights and instead seek the betterment of others seek their growth and their Christ likeness we pray that as we continue to pursue those same goals as we gather corporately regularly to worship you and to rejoice in you that you would help us to be people who meditate upon the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
and that that would spur us on to love and to good works. In your name, amen. Paul begins, and as he does so, he reprimands them for false worship. Now, I'm not, I'm not preaching this text because I think we have a problem with the specific problem that they have. I think there's lots of different ways that you could express false worship, right? It's, it's false worship to proclaim that you love Christ in taking the Lord's Supper and then to disobey him as you drive through traffic, right? And to, you know, insult somebody else in traffic and to not acknowledge the, the, the image of God that they bear. It's, it's false worship for you and I to gather together, corporately sing together, and say that we believe Christ is our everything, and then to go home and to speak harshly to our wife. It's false worship for you and I to say that, you know, to our neighbor, hey, what you really need is Christ, and then to turn to food and to drink and to eat drink whatever it is in excess because we're actually finding our hope in that situation, in that food, or in that thing that we're drinking. See, there's lots of different expressions of false worship, and for each one of those things, what is the correction? The correction is the same thing that he gives these Corinthians. The correction for false worship is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he reprimands them for false worship. And specifically, he says, believers can gather together for public worship, yet not honor Christ. Look at how he begins this. Now, as, as I've already kind of introduced the section, he's, he's talked about the importance of Christian liberty and the fact that we give up things because we love each other and want each other to grow in Christ. We want to glorify God in doing that. And then he moves from there and he says, now let's talk about your public worship there's some serious problems there. And he says that there's some serious problems here. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Something that is as important as the Lord's Supper, they're gathering for that. And he says, you're actually harming yourselves in this. Instead of allowing the truth that you're participating in, that, that Christ is coming to save the world and to transform you and make you like him, to help you grow in your love for one another. Instead, you're using that as an occasion to demonstrate animosity and a disregard for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I don't praise you for that. It's not honoring to Christ. It's not pursuing the goal that I've already established. Therefore, whether you eat or whether you, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He says, your worship must come into conformity with that purpose statement for your life. And so he talks specifically about the divisions in the church. And he reminds them of their many opportunities to pursue obedience. It seems that there's some sort of pattern. Jude calls the, the gathering of the local church back in those days um, for the Lord's Supper a, a love feast. It, it was common that they had the probably a stronger connection to the, the Passover meal, the Seder meal, to the Lord's Supper than we do. And so that they would commonly have a meal together as part of their public worship. And so towards the beginning of the meal probably is when Jesus ate the bread, and towards the end of the meal is when Jesus took the cup and he blessed the cup and he drank the cup and shared it with his disciples. And so the Christians in that day are seeking to 
model and follow some of those principles. And he says, you guys are doing a bad job of this. Every time you observe the Lord's Supper, you have another opportunity to show everyone there your love for Christ and your love for others. And yet, what you're doing is, you have a really wealthy person who's hosting the local church in his house. And he may have a fellowship area that's big enough for, you know, according to mod, that, the, the standards for that day, to have a party of maybe 15 or 20 people in his banquet hall. And he sets up a beautiful feast for them. And the people who are wealthy, because there wasn't a day off on Sundays like we think of Sundays in our culture and still don't. The people who are wealthy could get out of their jobs quickly and come and join the feast. And they're, they're worshiping, so to speak, together. And they're eating, they're drinking. Paul even uses the terminology that they're getting drunk at these events. And then the poor person who has very limited amounts of food to be able to bring and contribute to this, maybe no food to be able to contribute to this occasion, comes towards the end of the feast when the best food is eaten, maybe most of the food even is eaten. He talks about them being hungry and not having food. And he says, how dare you get up and say we're proclaiming the Lord's death, that he's, he's died equally for all of us, that he loves us all, and that we are celebrating our unity in Christ, and then some of you can gather together hours earlier and feast and drink until you're drunk. And some of you get there so late and are so poor that you don't even have any food to eat. He goes, you're squandering your opportunities to show the community around you that you're united in Christ. I don't praise you. This is horrible. It's not for your better. It's for your worse. He goes on and he says, corporate gatherings may miss the reason for corporate meetings. And that's exactly the problem here. You know, we can gather for many different purposes. We can gather to keep up our reputation in a community. We could gather for, you know, the purpose of just developing and maintaining the friends that we have. But why do we gather corporately? It's not so that you and I can keep our reputation up with each other. It's not so that you know, my daughters can play with their friends. Those are good things. Those are things that we want to encourage. But that's not the purpose. The purpose is to know Christ, to preach the gospel to each other once again, to remind each other that we have died to sin and that we are now raised to life in Christ. And he says you're missing the entire purpose of your corporate gatherings. You're selfish. You're greedy. And he's calling upon them to stop it. And so they have forgotten that Christ died, that he was buried, and he has rose from the dead for all people. These truths are completely absent in their outworking of the gospel. He goes on and he says, there must be factions among you. And he says, he's kind of, you know, um, trying to be kind in how he says this. But, you know, he says, first of all, when you come together, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. He does more than in part believe it. You know that because when you read through everything else he says, you don't go, I, don't, I wonder if he's debating whether or not he believes us. He definitely believes us. And he's rebuking them for it. But he's trying to be, be gentle and kind as he encourages them and motivates them to be Christ-like. He says there must be factions among you. That those who are among you who are approved may be recognized. 
Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Why? Because it's not a love feast. The love feast becomes a public reminder to the poor of their exclusion from the ministry of Christ. They're telling them, yeah, Christ died for you, but we're not willing to share any of our food with you. This is a public worship service, but, you know, you've got to find your own way on this. For in, e in eating, each one of you takes his own supper ahead of others. One is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who are unwell? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. So believers should separate their large wealthy dinners from their love feasts. He's not telling them you can't have your best buddies over and eat like this. But he is saying if you're going to do that, don't tell people that this, this, this fellowship meal is somehow worshiping God. It's not. He says if you want to eat, eat at home. He's going to come back and he's going to actually talk about eating corporately again. But he's not saying don't eat corporately, but he's saying if you do choose to have corporate meals, Make sure that you care for people in an equal way, in a loving way for all people. Our actions either profess a love for Christ and his body, the church, or they proclaim our greed. You know, this can be expressed in many different ways. <coughs> and how you may struggle with expressing your greed and then coming and publicly proclaiming that you're worshiping Christ and how I may do it may be drastically different. I believe that it is drastically different from what's portrayed here. I don't know if anybody who's, you know, um, coming to carry in dinners and brings their own meal and, you know, eats a T-bone steak while the rest of us eat whatever else is uh, served, right? Um, that's not happening. But the point is false worship based upon our own greed or own selfishness. And if we think about it that way, instead of thinking about just in, you know, food terms, I think the Spirit of God uses the text then to reveal to us that, yeah, there are errors in our own lives where we proclaim publicly that we are worshiping Christ, that he is our everything. And yet our visible actions or maybe our thoughts portray something drastically different about us. And Paul is going to use this text to call you and I to then examine ourselves. But before he gets there, he's, he's reprimanded them. He said... This is false worship. Avoid that. It's, it's a sign of your own greed, your own selfishness, your desire to fulfill your own wants, not to pursue a love for your neighbor, not in any demonstration of your love for Christ. It's wrong. It must be set aside. But notice as he encourages them to set aside, he doesn't just say, get away with this and do this instead. He doesn't just say, don't eat by yourselves. Instead, wait. There's a middle step that's imperative for you and I as we seek to put off false worship and embrace true godly worship. What is it? It's the gospel. And so in the middle of all this, he tells us this is the true gospel. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus came to do for you and for me. And so he tells them, review the gospel. Remind yourselves regularly of the gospel. And as you do that, it is going to work towards correcting and replacing your false worship with true, 
genuine, God-honoring, God-pleasing worship. And so he begins and he says, the church has a tradition of proclaiming Christ through the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. In verse 23 through verse 26, he's, he's pointing them to the gospel. He says, this is the gospel. For I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you. Notice this is something that is a tradition. Paul's not saying that, you know, this is something I just made up. He's saying this is the tradition of the church. This is what the church does. Why? Because we're all in desperate need of being reminded of what the true gospel is so that we can live like Christ wants us to. And so he says, this is the true gospel. I've been, I have this delivered to me by Christ, and I'm going to share it with you. And so he says that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. What is he highlighting? He's highlighting two different truths. He's highlighting the sacrifice of Christ, and he's highlighting the importance of remembering Christ. And he says, Christ sacrificed himself for you. Think of all the, the truth that you and I, you know, hear that and it immediately brings lots of truth to our mind. Why did Christ sacrifice himself for me? Why did Christ sacrifice himself for you? It's not because you're a wonderful person who, you know, has no choice but you're going to be spending eternity with God. No, that's not why Christ sacrificed himself for you. Christ sacrificed himself for you because you are a sinner. Christ sacrificed himself for you because you were bound for hell. Christ sacrificed himself for you because you had no way of turning that ship around. You were going headfirst with no brakes. No hope of changing the outcome. And God, in his great love and mercy, looked down upon a hell-bound world and said, that's not my desire. My desire is not to condemn, but rather to see people come to repentance. To find life, to find hope, to find their true meaning in who I am. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ. He came, he lived the perfect, sinless life. And then he was killed because of your sin and because of my sin. And he says, believe in me. That I have done what you could not do. That I rescued you. That I've forgiven you your sins. That I've given you the righteousness of Christ. the sacrifice is applied to you. You no longer bear that guilt. You no longer bear that penalty. And he uses different imageries to portray that. He talks about the broken body of Christ. He talks about the shed blood of Christ. What is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that Christ is our sacrifice. And tied up into all this is, as you think about the imagery from the Passover meal, is the cup of blessings. And through this sacrifice, there is this blessing that Christ is giving. It's the same blessing that God has talked about 
through ages, God comes to Abraham. Even before that, think back to Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall and sin enters into the world and it messes everything up. God comes to Adam and Eve and says, yeah, the sin's going to bite your heel, but someday someone is coming who's going to crush the serpent's head. In Abraham, God comes to him and says, through you all the nations are going to be blessed. He comes to him in chapter 12 and he tells him that. Chapter 15 he tells him that. And the theme of God's blessing continues through Scripture. See, God desires to bless his people, and he does so through the sacrifice of his son. His loss is our gain. And that's what the Lord's Supper proclaims. That this is our truth. That this is our hope. That this is our joy. That this is the truth that then transforms my relationship with you and your relationship with me. We love each other because of what Christ has done for us. And then he says, focus on the fact that Christ sacrificed himself for you, but then remember that truth. What does that mean? That means you've been buried with Christ. You died with him and you've been buried with him, and now you've been raised again. To do what? To walk in newness of life. So remember who you were. Remember what did for you, and then live that out. So he's telling them, really, just remember the gospel. He goes on and he says that the Lord's Supper is a public retelling of the gospel. Notice how he concludes this whole section. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You're once again telling everybody that this is the gospel, this is the hope for humanity, and this is the truth that I'm going to seek to live out. He says, this is the gospel, guys. This is what you're supposed to be centered around. This is what's going to direct and guide your worship of the one true God. So he's calling them to align themselves with this truth. You know, we need to hear the gospel retold. That's why we gather corporate. We need to hear the gospel retold. But we also need to be part of those who are retelling the gospel. Telling the gospel to our friends at church. Telling the gospel to our spouse. Telling the gospel to our children. Time and time again. Not just on a monthly basis when we observe the Lord's Supper. No, on a daily basis we remind ourselves of the gospel. That we have died with Christ and we've been raised with do what? To proclaim with our every breath the glory of the God who saved us. Whether we're eating or whether we're drinking or whatever we're doing, we're striving towards that gain. And that's our goal every Sunday, regardless of whether or not we're observing the Lord's Supper. Our goal is to once again proclaim the gospel and proclaim the implications and the application of that gospel to us. See, the gospel truth proclaims love, it proclaims mercy, and it proclaims that you and I have the ability to flee temptation. That it flies in the face of the Corinthians' actions. They're proclaiming that they can love each other, that they can have mercy with each other, that they are joint heirs of Christ, and yet some are drunk and gorgeous.
gorged with food and other draconian says, not anymore. The gospel calls you to a higher, far different way of living out true worship. And so what does right living in the gospel then look like? Sorry, the gospel demands that believers approach worship solely with the purpose of exalting their risen Savior. Our, our desire, our ambition is to exalt Christ. To make Christ known. When we observe the Lord's Supper, the primary goal is to proclaim who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And as we do that, God is glorified. But he goes on and he gives them some implications. What does this all mean? He said, you have this problem, here's the solution, it's the gospel. It's the very thing that you say you're doing, but you're not actually doing it. Right? And we can do that, right? We can look at our own lives and we can see things that we've done that are sinful and we, we've, you know, sometimes many, many years or months or weeks, we've come together corporately proclaim the gospel, maybe even corporately participate in the Lord's Supper, and yet that sin continues to be a large characteristic of our lives. Okay? And he says, this is the reprimand. Review the gospel. But then he tells them, this is how you live rightly. So what does he call them to do? In the right living, he says, examine your life as you approach and this is where the application is broader than, you know, the immediate application for the Corinthians. As you think through 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 22, what is the immediate application of, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The immediate application that Paul is trying to get at is, stop being greedy. Don't gorge yourself and get drunk. Meanwhile, another one of your brothers or sisters in Christ is hungry. Examine yourself. Is this in alignment with the gospel that you proclaim? No. And as we think about it, this is where the application can be much broader than what Paul immediately thought. What are other ways in which we demonstrate false worship? Really, any sin is a demonstration of a false worship. Why? Because when I sin, what am I worshiping? I'm not worshiping God. I'm pursuing my own desire in some way. I'm worshiping myself. And that's a false application of worship. And for any application, false application of worship, to be present in my life when I'm proclaiming that Jesus is everything to me, that's something that I need to examine and confess. And so as he works towards application, the application for you and I is far broader. The application for them is far broader. Right? The immediate application is, you know, don't treat your brother and sister like trash and say that you believe the gospel. That's not accurate. By application, there's so much more. It's really calling you and I to examine ourselves and say, where is the next step that I need to be intentional and purposeful in going in Christ's likeness? Where is my worship not consistent with the gospel that I proclaim to love and to believe and to save. And to repent of that and turn from it and pursue Christ's likeness. So he says, but let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
He goes on. Notice, he has this understanding that, you know, if you're willing to do that, freely and joyfully participate in the Messiah. He's not seeking to terrorize people, you know, so long as they're, I would say, believers and they're members of a, a local church. He's not trying to keep those people outside of the Lord's Supper. He wants those who have professed Christ and who are members of a local church to joyfully, regularly be examining their life, fleeing temptation, and participating in the Lord's Supper. But if you're a, a born-again believer who's a member of a local church and you're unwilling to examine your life and to flee temptation, to flee sin as God reveals it to you, he says, don't you dare. Notice what he says in conjunction with that. He says, recognize the importance of the Lord's Supper. And as he, he does this, he's really picking up on the discern the Lord's body aspect. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in verse, um, sorry, I lost my place here. Verse 29. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. So he's saying, recognize the importance of the Lord's Supper. He's saying it, it's completely different than, you know, if you were just at your home by yourself and you picked up a glass of grape juice for breakfast and had that with some toast. They're two drastically different things. The one is a public profession, a public proclamation that this is what you value. This is what you're seeking to demonstrate with your life. And he says, if that's not true, then you haven't recognized the importance of the Lord's Supper. You're not living in light of that and avoid it because he says some of you are sick and some of you have even died because of your disobedience to the Lord's Supper. You must obey. And then he finally concludes by telling them that they must demonstrate the love of Christ in your actions. Notice as he concludes um, but when we are judged, I should have read verse 32 in conjunction with the previous thing. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So he talks about the fact that God sometimes judges us to chasten us so that we would change and that we would flee our sin. The last idea that he brings up, though, is this idea that we should be striving together, that we should be demonstrating the love that we have from Christ to one another. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. He says you can't you can't keep having Mr. Rich Guy with space for 15 to 20 people set up a huge banquet that's the modern day, you know, accepted way of doing a banquet with vast amounts of meat and delicious sides and vast amounts of alcohol that 16 people consume, and you get drunk and gorge yourself on food. And then, you know, five hours later when the people who work in the fields come in from their labor, there's nothing left. He says, if you're going to continue having meals together, wait for one another. Don't schedule the meeting saying, you know, Lord's Supper starts at, you know, noon on a work day when you know that everybody's not going to get off till 5 p.m. and then they're going to have to go home and get a shower and then come to work, come to the service, right? There's not going to be any food left over by the time you're done. Don't do that. If you're going to do this, wait. 
schedule it, set it up in such a way that all of God's people can join. But if anyone is hungry, let them eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in my judgment. It says if, if you think you can't make it to 5 o'clock to you know, eat at the church gathering when you have the Lord's Supper, eat lunch, and then come for supper at 5 o'clock. You know, be smart about this. But he wants us to examine ourselves. The gospel calls you and I to examine he wants us to recognize that the Lord's Supper is something that's important. And he wants us to then use this as something that spurs us on to love one another. To publicly show that the gospel that we proclaim has actually changed who we are and changes what we do. Because unbelievers, they're always hosting meals for 15 or 20 people where they gorge themselves. And then their servants eat the scraps. This is no different than everybody else in your community. Live differently. Live as people who have been drastically, radically transformed by the gospel. And so as we think about application of the text, you know, he's saying our greed can easily creep into many facets of our lives together. But it's not just you know, whether or not we have a corporate meal together and you, know, you bring a T-bone steak and eat that by yourself while the rest of us have casserole. I like casserole. Hey, don't take it personally. <laughs> um, rather, he's saying, you know, this, this, this demonstration of false worship creeps into all sorts of areas. And he's calling us to think more broadly in our current world. What does false worship look like for us? And greed affects multiple areas of our lives with false worship. The gospel is the balm our greedy hearts need in public worship. That's why he points them to that. It is what heals our greed. It is what corrects our selfishness. It is what is going to point you towards a path of being transformed into the likeness of Christ. This is the gospel. And so he says, focus on the gospel. Remind yourself as you're partaking of the Lord's Supper what this is really about. It's about Christ's sacrifice for you. Remember, you've died with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. Now you live in newness of life. He says, examine your hearts regularly for public worship. He tells them to recognize the value of the Lord's Supper, and he tells them to strive to show love in the corporate gathering of God's people. And he says, this is going to take a drastic step. It's not the only step that they need to take in their public worship. But remembering the gospel, centrality of the gospel as we gather corporately will allow our corporate gathering to lead to genuine transformation of our hearts. It helps us become more like Christ and helps us point others to be more like Christ. Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the fact that you have provided us with your Son. And that through him we have unity, we have peace with God, we have peace with one another. We pray that as we meditate upon the gospel, as we retell the story of the gospel to one another, we would use it to help us to constantly be re-examining our hearts, to be recognizing the importance of gathering and proclaiming together that you are our everything. And that as a result of being 
brought into contact with the gospel once again. May our love for one another be evident in our actions.